Hello and welcome along to episode number 183 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. And in this episode, the last episode of 2022, we hear from Derya Özkul, Senior Research Fellow at the Refugee Studies Centre, the University of Oxford, and the co-editor, along with Hege Markusen, of The Alevis in Modern Turkey and the Diaspora, Recognition, Mobilisation and Transformation, published by Edinburgh University Press. The book is a wide-ranging volume with over a dozen articles examining various aspects of Alevi life and representation in contemporary Turkey and overseas, how it's changing, the forces at work influencing Alevi culture, beliefs and practices, and the fraught political landscape as President Erdogan's AKP, with its roots in Sunni Islamism, enters its third decade in power. But before we start, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But enough of that, let's move on now to our conversation with Derya Özkul. The size of Turkey's Alevi minority is surprisingly difficult to pin down. I've seen estimates ranging wildly from 4% to 20% of the population, and the question of defining Alevism is also much more complicated than it appears at first glance. Derya Özkul talks about this in the introduction to the volume, writing the following, quote, Some consider Alevism to be the essence or the true, unadulterated form of Islam, Others would say Alevism contains some Islamic traditions, be it Shia-oriented or a mystical Islamic approach, while yet another group does not acknowledge it as a religion and instead perceives it as a philosophy, a set of ethics, a worldview or a continuous struggle for justice and equality. Recently, and especially in European countries, there's also a call for Alevism to be recognised as a unique religion in its own right. Alevi communities are varied and may have different definitions according to their histories, own sources of knowledge and experience. Despite the variety of explanations, most Alevis emphasize the differences between Sunni Islam and Alevism. So I started by asking Derya Özkul to expand on this question of the fraught nature of defining what Alevism actually is. So um, I should emphasize, sorry, in the beginning that 
we deliberately refrained from defining what Alevism is and particularly refrained from defining what an Alevi identity is. But of course, obviously, uh, for a reader who does not know anything about Alevism or who, haven't, who hasn't heard anything about Alevis in general, uh, we still wanted to introduce the subject. And for that reason, we have one specific chapter by Markus Dressler, who is one of the experts on this very topic. And his chapter specifically, I mean, our introduction kind of gives a very um, brief introduction, but his chapter specifically deals with this question of definition. And he shows that Alevism is defined differently by different Alevi communities, and that it also has changed over time. So he writes that the term Alevilik, for example, is historically a young term, but Alevism, of course, as a social phenomenon, is an older one. And what we call today as Alevi includes also Kuzilbash communities from the late 15th century and Bektashi communities related to the Sufi order of Bektashi. Basically, he shows, and we also uh, agree with him, that there are various definitions of Alevism. So there is this hegemonic style, as we, as he calls the Turkish Islamic position, which basically presents Alevism as a Turkish heterodox form of Islam. And then there is the Kurdish nationalist position, which connects Alevi roots to rather Kurdish Iranian religious traditions. And then there are others who argue that it's a, actually a mystical form of Islam or it's the real form of Shia. And then there, there are some who argue, especially in the diaspora, that recognizes Alevism as a religion in its own right. And then there are others who just would say, you know, Alevism is not a religion, but it's just a humanist worldview. It's just a way of life, just, it's just a way of living. And there are finally others who would say Alevism is a political position which refers to our struggle for justice in the name of the oppressed. So these are all different definitions, of course. And different Alevi communities may define it differently or different people within different communities may define it differently. So I really would like to be careful here because there have been, I mean, usually Alevis, if you look at various sources, they would be defined as a heterogeneous community of Islam or in Turkey and Anatolia and so on. And we have to be really careful with that because actually that definition around heterogeneity first is not correct because actually all social groups and all social, all religious groups are heterogeneous, right? I mean, if you look at Islam or Christianity or any, any kind of religion, each of these subgroups would be heterogeneous as well. Of course, I mean, this is not surprising at all. But the believers of in major faith, the dominant groups, they do not have to legitimize their faith for others. It's just taken for granted. If you are in Turkey, in the context of Turkey, if you are from the Sunni group, you don't have to explain to the Turkish state or to the general community what, what your faith actually involves. The problem starts when it's a minority group and when a particular group or an organization or a state tries to define that minority group and tries to standardize it. And we saw this playing really a big role in Alevi workshops back in 2009 and 10, when the state was trying to define Alevism and they really started playing out on the fact that, oh, there are too many various groups and too many differences, so we can't actually define this group. So we have to be really careful we have to, of course, understand the differences between communities, but also we have to be really careful of not overemphasizing on those differences. So really um, look at also the similarities between Arabi communities and the similarities between their demands from the Turkish state and the society. And just, yeah, just try to take their words, basically, on what they say. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that article by Marcus Dressler, because he was one of actually the first guests ever on this podcast, back when the audio quality was even worse than it is now. 
And uh, yeah, his book on on the question of the origins of the term Alevism was was really interesting. And he makes the point in the piece that he writes for this this volume, this latest volume, that it's only really in the 20th century that the term Alevi even started to be used widely. And he, he says that the oldest example of the abstract noun, Alevilik, that he's aware of, dates from 1898. So it just goes to show that this this idea of Alevism is constantly being reinvented. It's not really a concept with uh, rigid boundaries. It's always changing according to different circumstances. Yeah. Having said that, uh, I, I really have really want to emphasize that that's the case with all of the terms, right? I mean, even if the Sunni term, have ex- of course, has existed for a lo- much longer period, its definition and what it means and how it's practiced changes, has changed over time. Like all other religious groups, right? Like all other social groups, in fact. One thing that I picked up in the book as well is that, is it right to argue that there's been this gradual standardization within Turkey at least, of Alevism throughout the 20th century and to today. Basically, you've seen this big urbanization throughout the the century, basically. And that obviously clashed with the almost rural, peripheral origins of uh, Alevism. And that obviously led to a kind of homogenization that was associated with this migration to urban centers, in which this culturally diverse, very plural aspects of Alevism that often thrived in more remote areas, they became less prominent and they became more standardised and the idea of Jemevis in the, in the urban space became somehow homogenised in a way that wasn't the case before. Is that the correct conclusion to make about what happened? Yeah, I wouldn't. I think I have some objections to that. Of course, there has to be some sort of standardization in the sense that, you know, when Alevi communities from different rural backgrounds arrived in the same city, in the same neighborhoods, and they came together, of course, there has to be some sort of standardization to some extent in the, in the sense that if you, for example, if you form a Gemavi, and if you gather around a gem, uh, there has to be some rules that the community has to negotiate with and has to come up with. But I wouldn't agree that urbanization resulted in standardization because, again, you will see various Jamevis in Istanbul, for example, or in the diaspora as well. And you would see that they actually have very different, they may have different approaches as well. And Alevi communities from different backgrounds may choose different ones, you know. So we can't argue that all Jamevis have the same uh, approach to how to conduct a gem, for example, or how to think about politics and so on. So I, I wouldn't agree that it led to standardization, but standardization happened more um, perhaps when there were these forced requirements about defining Alevism. And we see that very clearly in the Alevi workshops. Again, I'd like to refer to those because when the state sort of brought together various Alevi organizations and Alevi communities together, one of the first questions was, okay, so then what is Alevism? Can you come up, can you explain us like what, what exactly, how you want us to define it? And then at that point, at those points where there is a required, forced require, requirement of definition of Olivism, then you have to standardize it, standardize it, right? So you have to say, Olivism is this and this, and you kind of start making certain rules. So I wouldn't say that standardization happens because of urbanization. But it did happen when there were some requirements to define Alevism. And we see that to some extent in the diaspora as well. So, for example, when Alevi communities in 
Germany, for example, when they uh, wanted to have the status of a religious community in Germany, they had to define who they were. So at that point, obviously, it was a long process. They had their own internal examination and they had various reports written about them by independent researchers and so on. But it was at that point that they had to define who they were and then there would have to be some standardized rules around what Alevism was, what a gem ceremony was and what the religious rituals were and so on. So I think, yeah, I, I would say standardization happens more from top to bottom level, if I, if I can say it correctly. So when there is a requirement to define Alevism, then there were sort of required rules that had to happen. And there we see we observe in standardization. And the section of the book that looks at the Turkish diaspora and Levy's position within it is your area of speciality, really. There are chapters in the book on the Alevi diaspora in Germany, France, Australia and Britain. And all these are unique cases, of course. But one thing uniting those chapters is this through line about Alevism being transformed outside the boundaries of Turkey. So just talking a bit more depth about how diaspora has changed and shaped Alevi's identity in those other countries to which significant numbers of Alevis have migrated at different points. Yeah, sure. So uh, we deliberately started that section with Martin Zöckepel's study on Alevi mobilization in Germany. He kind of frames this, he borrows from social movement theories in sociology, um, this concept of political opportunity structures. And he argues that basically different communities in the diaspora shape their movements according to the availability of opportunities in a specific political space. And in Germany, he shows that the leftist movements, well, actors that came from the leftist movements in Turkey started conceptualizing Alevism as a culture first. And then when they saw that there were there could be some opportunities, they started to frame it as a religion in its own right. And he argues that this was more to obtain the public corporation status, what is called in Germany, to have basically some sort of benefits from the, from the German state that they started to frame it that way. And I I kind of, I, I do agree with him. I compare that case with the case of in Australia, which is quite an interesting case because in Australia there was not such benefits for communities and on the contrary, multiculturalism, which was predominant at the time, was founded around the idea of cultural communities and it still is in fact. And in that case, Alevis, for example, they did not seek to frame Alevism as a religion in its own right. Of course, they were still fulfilling their own religious needs, but they did those as community needs emerged and not to frame Alevism as a religion as such in the eyes of the state. So I do agree with him, but I also think that we really have to look at not just the diaspora context and the opportunities or what's happening in the diaspora context, but also we really have to look at what's also happening in Turkey and how political changes impact the diaspora. So when Alevi movements in Germany, for example, started to frame specifically Alevism as a religion in its own right, we have to also look at what's changed in Turkey. And we see a rising political Islam and we see rising denigration of Alevism, more discrimination, more neglect over their demands, especially in violent cases. So, of course, in those conditions, it wasn't so surprising for the Alevi movements in the diaspora to say, okay, you know, if, if you are trying to frame us in this in this way, then we are not we do not see ourselves within Islam and we are a different religious community. So I think we really have to be careful and not analyze Alevi communities just in the uh, context that they live, but we really need to take a transnational approach and see how they are affected, how they're impacted by changes in Turkey as well. 
Related to that, you also talk about the idea of the diaspora experience loosening Alevism's link to Islam in some way, making the distinctive Aleviness stand out more and actually taking it away further even from the influence of the Dianet. So could you just talk about that aspect, how diaspora, the experience of diaspora, you mentioned Germany there, how that has loosened some of these links and increased the definition among some of Alevism as a distinct religion in its own right, distinct from Islam. Yeah, sure. I must say that this is not a view perhaps shared by the majority of Bolivia communities, especially in Turkey. But again, there have been very common and long-standing demands by Olivia communities in the diaspora and in Turkey about the Anit, and which has been the absolute demolishing or radically transforming of the Anit. And this has yeah. been... Should, should, we should define the Anit as well, sorry. Um, so the Anit is the, the state religious agency that, that is responsible for the control of mosques across Turkey and basically has a monopoly over religious activities, essentially, in the country. Yes, and we should emphasize that it has existed since since the establishment of the Turkish Republic. And if the Turkish Republic claims to be a secular state, which was the case when it was established, then Dianit really, I mean, the Dianit's position becomes really ambivalent. Then if you are a secular state, then how does the state have a religious institution which is funded by taxpayers' money and it has a very particular, uh, it has its own definition of what Islam is. So Alevis in Turkey and the diaspora as well um, have a long-standing demands or statements saying that they haven't been included in what Dianit sees as a dominant religion in Turkey. Alevism, since Dianit was established, wasn't did not have any place in the Dianit conceptualization of religion and of Islam and so on. So there were there have been concerns for a very long time. And it is very clear. I mean, they have they said it very they have been saying it very clearly that it has to be either demolished or radically transformed. I mean, that's something that I really want to emphasize that despite all these heterogeneity in their practices and definition of Olivism and so on, Olivis demands have been fairly similar and fairly quite consistent uh, as well. They have been asking for recognition of Jemimis as a faith place and demolishing or transforming of Dianit as an institution and also ending of compulsory uh, religious education in state schools. I mean, this has been, again, a very long-standing requirement and in general tackling with discrimination that is pervasive in all areas of daily life in Turkey um, at political and social level. Yet again, the the Turkish state's approach has been either to neglect all of these demands or to start this, what is called Alevi openings uh, in, back in 2010s when Turkey was going through these so-called democratic opening processes to emphasize on, on those differences rather than on the similarities in their demands. I mean, and we see that very clearly in Turkey's approach. So at the end of the those workshops, for example, they had published a final report and there it was basically saying that they essentially, I think there was a word saying like that essentially the problems among Alevis cannot be resolved with their own initiatives. So the uh, state, the Turkish state should take the lead to build the community's unity and solidarity. So it's really very dividing plus a very paternalistic approach towards what Alevis have demanded. And we can see that also very clearly in the new opening, as it's called, following Erdogan's visit to Cemevi this month. Again, we see that Alevis' demands towards Dianit has not been um, taken into account at all. 
Yeah, so let's come on to that in uh, in a second. I just wonder if we could frame that first of all by talking about where the current government, Erdogan's uh, AKP, fits in here. More broadly, you know, what has been the AKP's policy towards Alevis since coming to power in 2002? Obviously, we're talking about an Islamist-rooted party with grassroots among conservative Muslims. But there have been a number of supposed outreaches to Alevis under the AKP at various points. So what is the party's record on Alevis? What trajectory can we trace? Yeah, sure. Um, In the beginning, in the very early years, when they came to power, there was not any discussions about Alevis as such. And that was the case for a very long time in Turkey, by the way. I should emphasize it. This is not, hasn't been particularly the case with AKP only. CHP as well in the past wasn't so much uh, necessarily interested in Alevis demands. So when AKP came to power, of course, there wasn't any expectations because of their Islamic roots and so on. But interestingly, uh, when they started the democratization initiatives at the time with other minority groups as well, with Armenians and Kurdish movements and so on, they also at one point they came to Alevi's demands as well and they started this what is called as Alevi openings back in late 2000s. And this was ironically the first time that a government, that a Turkish government was interested in hearing about Alevi's demands and um, possibly do something about them. Of course, at the time, it was received quite suspiciously because it wasn't sure. I mean, it wasn't clear whether whether or not they had genuine interests in Alevis. But somehow, some organizations did participate in the in those workshops anyhow, because, again, as I said, this was the first time that the Turkish government was kind of trying to understand Alevis demands publicly. So those workshops, there were several of them. And again, I mean, I did mention quite earlier, so the workshops kind of started with an idea to understand and to define Alevism. And it it became the space to define Alevism in the eyes of the public or publicly, and also show that there are so many differences and that Alevi organizations have their different views on certain things and so on. So that just the final report of the workshops emphasized that there were just too many differences that Alevi community, Alevi organizations cannot even define what Alevism is. So the state really should intervene and help them and so on. And then the workshops ended with no real, no real action plan or an action plan that has been that was participatory in a way that that could include Alevi organizations demands at the time, because again, their demands were actually quite consistent and very clear. And then it kind of became really quiet for various years. And then we started seeing a growing interest last year and then this year as well, growing again, I mean, repeated calls for Alevi openings. And we see that particularly from before, like, before the time of elections, especially, I should emphasize. So again, because next year we have an election in Turkey, an important election, we see that there are, again, some efforts to reach out to Alevi communities. But again, I mean, all of these efforts, we see that Alevi organizations, the major ones and the democratic ones, have been quite clear on what they want from the state and what they will not accept from the state. So towards the end of the workshops, for example, the major Alevi organizations were not part of it. And it was only very few organizations that the Turkish states became like were close with. And they started to kind of 
you know, work with the ones that they favored, basically, over the ones that were favored by the majority of Alevi communities in Turkey. Yeah, so this year, again, we see an interest, uh, a renewed interest in becoming closer with the Alevi communities by, from the side of the government. But again, the major Alevi organizations have been very clear that they consider this as, again, another um, process of assimilation and not listening to their demands and defining Alevism uh, in their own terms. This past month, there have been some news uh, about Anadolu Agency, for example, which is the uh, main state-run news agency. They claim that the uh, Alevi openings came to this most important phase of the Alevi openings and the details of the state will be declared by the president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. I'm not going to go too much into details, but basically uh, Erdogan then had a visit to a Gemevi and they declared that there will be now a change in law and that Gemevis will be established under the Ministry of Culture and Tourism. And they were saying that all problems related to like infrastructural problems like lightning, water, electricity, expenses and so on will now be solved, basically. And the statement kind of, I mean, just looking at the news, I mean, their statements kind of constructed an idea as if the problem, Alevi's problems were just related to financial issues around Gemevis costs for water or electricity, but they didn't consider at all Alevi's long-lasting demands in this area, and they haven't included any of the major organizations in the making of legislation. Yeah, so these past few suggestions, basically, in this last week and the past month, they are not seen genuinely by most major Alevi organizations, I should say. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what the fate of that uh, new state institution is, what it actually does. Obviously, you say there, you know, critical voices saw these moves as just another attempt really to create a almost statified Alevism. I suppose another interesting point is that obviously this new institution didn't go as far as many or most Alevi groups, activists and citizens demanded in terms of officially recognising Jamevis as worship houses, for example. But even there, there's a nuance because we can't talk about all Alevi groups being on board with that demand as well, because there are, again, these concerns about if that recognition came, then it would bring Jemebis more under the yoke of the state, essentially. And it would give, in theory, the state more power to monitor and, and basically, again, create this statified Alevism. You know, there is that nuance of opinion there as well, that uh, this isn't a homogenous demand. There are people who believe that, you know, recognising Jemebis as houses of worship would compromise them in a way that uh, they don't want. They would rather just have autonomy. But by having autonomy, that's also created its own injustice because it means that obviously you've got mosques across the country funded by the state and Jemevis not funded at all. So there's this second class citizenship, essentially. So it just goes to show you, you know, there are these nuances, particularly on a really hot button issue like that even. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And the state in this case has to do a lot more just because there is no trust by Alevi communities towards the Turkish state, right? And that's very fair. Because that's quite fair because they all past crimes that happens and those past crimes haven't been commemorated in, a, in, in the right way. So we can't expect Alevi communities to just start trusting the Turkish state that they, will, they won't be monitoring their faith places. So it is up to the Turkish government to gain that trust. And it, it will not happen just by such small gestures of just paying the water electricity bill or just saying a public apology, as Erdogan did a few years ago, 
and then doing nothing else. You know, it has to be a genuinely, and it's, it has to be genuine, plus it has to be a very continuous process of building that trust again. And that would take years and years. So we can't expect other communities to not be skeptical about Turkish states just paying their some financial costs and not having any say in their place of faith. That was Deria Özkul. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 183. And that was the final episode of this year. Many thanks for listening throughout the year. We've had some terrific episodes, I think, and we've got some pretty good ones also lined up early next year as well. If you've enjoyed Turkey Book Talk throughout this year and want to support us going into the new year, you can do that by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is, among other things, a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some truly excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel as well now for signed up members who want more. And they've also started publishing high quality on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, see you in 2023 and thank you very much for listening. Thank you.